me, right? <laughs> Move it over here. Well, good morning. It's uh, been a minute since I've been able to join you guys on a Sunday, so I'm, I'm excited to be here with you guys um, and just to have the opportunity to dive into God's Word with, with His people um, is always, always a pleasure. So thank you guys for allowing me to come back and, and dive into God's Word with you. So um, this morning, um, we're going to take a pause in your guys' study, which is Leviticus, I believe. I said that with a question mark at the end because I wasn't sure, but I thought I was correct. So we're going to take a pause in that study, and we're going to actually hang out in the book of Proverbs this morning. Proverbs. So if you have uh, your Bibles out, your copy of the Scriptures, go ahead and meet me in Proverbs 16. In Proverbs 16. And as you're getting there, I'll kind of give you some brief, helpful information about the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs was written by a man um, that went by the name of Solomon. He was uh, King David's son, um, ends up being King Solomon, and he ends up being widely renowned for his wisdom, his knowledge, his wealth, his honor, all sorts of um, all sorts of stuff like that, and, and so what Solomon did was he wrote um, or collected a bunch of short sayings, adages uh, that were just filled with his wisdom that he was trying to first and foremost share with his sons. He was trying to share with this wisdom that he had with his sons so that they could walk in a wise way, and then um, thankfully the Lord uh, preserved it so that the general public could then glean from his wisdom, and now we get to to hang out and listen to some of his wisdom. And it's, and it's fun because the Proverbs, like I said, it's short sayings together. Um, sometimes they get threaded together to cover a topic um, that Solomon was. Sometimes it's just one standalone sentence. Um, if you would imagine uh, a Twitter account for Solomon, that's almost what Proverbs works like, right? A short saying, although we know, as you know, those of you on Twitter know that not every tweet has some wisdom in it. Um, Solomon shares his tweets with his sons, and so we get to, to glean from his, his Twitter account. So we're going to be in Proverbs 16, verse 18 today. Proverbs 16, verse 18. And I have the, I'm going to read it, I have the CSB, if there's any Bible translation people out there. Pride comes before destruction, and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Pride comes before destruction, and an arrogant spirit before a fall. So Solomon, in this proverb, in this short tweet, he wastes no time in getting to his topic, um, which is pride. He wastes no time and gets to pride, and, and pride has been around for a very long time. As the, the author J.C. Ryle writes in his short little booklet, Thoughts for Young Men, he writes that pride is the oldest sin in the world. He, he later on writes that it was before the world. Satan and his angels fell by pride. They were not satisfied with their first Estate, And then about a paragraph later, he says that pride is what cast Adam out of paradise. He was not content with the place that God had assigned him. He tried to raise himself and fell. So we've been wrestling with pride for a very long time. And we see it a lot today. And it's really easy to, to point out in other people. We throw the term out a lot. But before we really take any steps further, I want to make sure that we get kind of on the same page, not like you and me on the same page, but like us all together 
get on the same page with Solomon. Like when Solomon said pride, what, what was he saying? What, was, what is he actually speaking about? Let's understand what Solomon is getting after. So um, the two words that, that kind of are referring to pride here, uh, we've got pride, and, and in my translation it says arrogant spirit. Yours might say haughty spirit. Um, both of those words involve being lifted up, being, being lifted up, raised up, exalted, gaining height in some way. Now the first translation, is, is, or the first word pride, is referring more to the trying to lift themselves up in a self-reliant type of way. They're trying to, to trust in themselves to do the lifting um, and gain the height that they want. It's the attitude of, of the self-made man almost. And then the second, an arrogant spirit or haughty spirit, is also a spirit, but it's the spirit of exalting themselves in superiority. In superiority, making yourself more important, more valuable than other people trying to raise yourself up in a way that says, I'm, I'm better than, I'm more valuable than those that surround me. And according to Solomon, what follows this prideful attitude, this arrogant spirit, is destruction, ruin, a fall, or a crash. And there's a lot of dangers that I think we see with pride. So I kind of broke this down almost into three dangers that we see in pride. And the first danger that we can observe is that pride is an attitude. So the first, the first word refers to the attitude of somebody you know, being self, self-reliant in a way that makes themselves better than somebody else. The other one is an arrogant spirit. right? Pride and arrogance is an attitude, which means it's not necessarily the actions themselves. It's not an outward action, but it lies behind the action. It's not necessarily what we do, but why we do something. What's the purpose? The why question is where pride will lie waiting. And the fact that it's an attitude means it's dangerous because it means that no one is immune to pride. No one is immune to this arrogance. It doesn't rely on like a social status or economic status or age group, age group or whatever it may be. It can affect or come for anyone. It's something that any and all of us are susceptible to because it lies behind. And then the other piece to that is that it can stain and not only come for anybody, um, but it, it can come for anything, anything we have, anything we do. Pride can, can repackage, repurpose, and, ul- and ultimately go to our glory and our self-lifting rather than the Lord. Even our talents, our abilities, ways that we serve people can be stained by pride, And if you think uh, a little bit ahead with me to the book of Luke, where Jesus shares a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, right? So it goes like this. A Pharisee um, and a tax collector. Two men went to the temple to pray. Pharisee, tax collector. And the Pharisee prays like this. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, adulterers, unjust, extortioners. I fast twice a week, and I give a tithe of all that I get. See, he's praying very prideful and arrogant. But what's he prideful and arrogant in? I found this fascinating. He's, he's prideful in the fact that he fasts and he ties Things that the Lord kind of doesn't just like say, if you're going to do it, he says, when you fast, fast like this, implying that you, you should be fasting. Or when you give, give like this, implying that, yes, you should be giving. The things that the Lord tells us to do, the Pharisee uses and repurposes in a way that 
lifts himself up, right? He's arrogant in the fact that, hey, I don't commit adultery. That's a good thing. But he uses it to then lift himself up. He doesn't extort people, and he seeks to be just. And he uses that to make himself better than the tax collector. See, even the the good things that the Lord has called us to do can be repurposed and repackaged in a way that goes to honor us and not the Lord. And I think um, one of the best illustrations we find in the scriptures, and this is a a little different for me because normally I just sit in one passage and we just go straight down um, the passage. We're going to use... King Solomon as a case study for pride. The very man that wrote down, hey, pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. We're going to take a look at his life, the wisest man that lives. So if you would, I don't know if you want to, you know, keep your finger in in the proverb and then flip all the way to 1 Kings 10 with me. Don't have to. I'm not making you. Don't feel obligated. But if you'd like to, that would be fine. Um, But as you're getting there, just a little background in King Solomon, right? So Solomon... As the son of David, David passes away. Solomon then becomes king, and he's really young. He's really young, and so he desires to to follow in the footsteps of the Lord. But in his youth, um, he knows that he lacks some things. So he ends up going to Gibeon um, to pay homage to the Lord, and the Lord visits him in a dream and basically just asks Solomon, hey, what do you want? Solomon, what do you want? I'll give it to you. And in response, uh, young Solomon acknowledges the Lord's faithfulness, his righteousness, and his own youth and own lack. And because of this, he asks for a receptive heart to judge between good and evil. He asks for wisdom, right? He asks for wisdom. And, and the Lord, being pleased with that, grants him that request, but then also adds on to it the other things that he could have asked for, like honor and wealth. But Solomon did not ask for those things. The Lord, being happy with him, asking for wisdom, grants it to him, so much so that that we've not ever seen wealth and honor to this level, even today. And wisdom up until, I mean, he was the wisest man up until Jesus steps on the scene. Um, And this kind of brings us now to 1 Kings 10. All right, so Solomon grows in this wisdom that the Lord has given him, this wealth. Um, And now we get to see a little bit of a picture of it. All right, so Solomon's, Solomon's wealth, verse 16, he had a ton of gold. So much gold that this is what he does with it. At least one thing that he does with it. Verse 16, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 15 pounds of gold went into each shield. He made 300 small shields of hammered gold. Nearly four pounds of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. So Solomon takes all this gold, had all this gold, and decides, hey, let's just make 500 shields right? 500 gold shields, and where are we going to put them? Hey, let's just hang them up as decorations in the house of the forest of Lebanon, right? Like, let's, practically speaking, gold, soft metal, like it's probably not something that you want to go use in battle, but looks really cool on the wall, looks really cool in a parade, right? That, that seems to be the function of these large gold shields. They're just decorations showing off Showing off his wealth. And then he places a lot of emphasis into his throne. Verse 18. The king also made a large ivory throne overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps. And there was a rounded top at the back of the throne. Armrests on either side of the seats. And two lions standing beside the armrests. Twelve lions were standing there on six steps. One at each end. Nothing like it had ever been made in any other kingdom. And so... 
he places all this emphasis. Not only does he have these cool gold shields, he places a ton of emphasis on his throne because when people show up to hear this wisdom, well, they, they need to know who the wise guy is, right? This is the guy on the huge gold throne with ivory over it. Like, like it's him. He can't be mistaken for some other Israelite. He's got to make sure that everyone knows that he's the one with the wisdom, right? He's got the wealth. He's got the wisdom. It's Solomon. Places himself kind of above everybody else, showing how valuable, how important he is. And I know it probably sounds like I'm harping on Solomon for having, having some things, right? Probably sounds like I'm saying, all right, he's got too much. But that's not the case. Remember, I, I mentioned that pride is, is in the why. It's kind of behind the actions. And I think we kind of get a picture of what's going on in Solomon's mind when we kind of skip forward to verse 26. Verse 26 says that Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which means he's probably got enough horses for those people, and stationed them in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar as abundant as sycamore in the Judean foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt in Kew. The king's traders bought them from Kew at the going price. The chariot was imported from Egypt for 15 pounds of silver and a horse for nearly four pounds. In the same way, they exported them all to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram through their agents. So he's accumulating a bunch of chariots and horses, which at this point in time is, is military, right? Like those are military weapons to use. So he's showing off his wisdom, his wealth, and now he's amassing some, some weapons for himself. And it's interesting because, you know, if you were to flip to Deuteronomy 17, you'd see that the Lord warns kings and says, hey, don't accumulate too many horses and don't, don't accumulate too many chariots. He's, he warns them, don't do it. And in Psalm 20, we see why. In Psalm 20, it says this, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we put our hope in the name of the Lord. When you amass this great military strength, where does your hope become? Well, now, now my hope is in my strength. My hope is in my power, not in the Lord. That's what Solomon is ultimately doing here. In his pride and his arrogance, he starts to place his trust and strength in himself. He tries to proclaim himself as the, the more valuable asset for Israel. Like, don't worry, guys, I got it. I have enough wealth, I have enough wisdom, and now I've got enough military power. We're going to be fine. We're going to be good, and we're going to be able to be secure, independent from the Lord. And the truth is, if Solomon, the very man that wrote down pride goes before destruction, is susceptible to pride, how much more am I? The man that wrote this down, recorded it, the wisest man in the world, pride came for him. How much more susceptible am I, who lacks all sorts of wisdom and knowledge? I'm extremely susceptible. And notice, not only did it come for Solomon, notice what it came for. God promised to give him wealth. Pride came for it. God promised to give him wisdom. Pride came for it, tried to repackage it in a way that lifted Solomon up instead of the Lord. Our talents, our abilities, ourselves, we are not immune to pride. It can come for anyone, and it can come for anything. But that's not the only danger that we see in pride. So um, thinking back to the proverb, if you've got your finger in there in the proverb, go ahead and, and flip back to it. But we see that pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. So what Solomon kind of shows us here is that there's a little bit of a time gap. It precedes 
the destruction and the fall. It precedes it. And there's some things that happen. And, and we don't have, you know, this exact science, you know, like, I'm not, an algebra, I'm not a math teacher anyway. I'm a PE teacher, so algebraic equations aren't my thing. But we don't really have an algebraic equation that says, all right, you've been prideful for, you've been this amount of prideful, X amount of weeks, Y amount of, of fall. Like we, we don't have an exact science to it, but we see that some things happen. The first might seem that we actually might see some success with pride. You might actually start to make steps towards your goal. Maybe it's notice, achievement, you know, the, again, lifting or exalting yourself. You might actually see some success. Why? Because in order for something to be considered a fall, there does have to be some distance, right? There's got to be some distance for something to, to, to be considered a fall. But we know that whatever reward you get, whatever gains there is in pride are all short-term. They're all short-term. You, you've been noticed. Get your attention. Congratulations. Your reward stays here. That's it. But that's not the only danger. And I think this is the ultimate danger um, in this time period for pride is that pride, when it's left unchecked, ends up snowballing into a multitude of sins. It snowballs into a multitude of sins. This pride, this need to be noticed, exalted, to keep yourself at a higher level level of importance and value than someone else leads to things like greed, can lead to gossip, theft, many, many others, all in order to raise yourself and keep yourself at a higher level of importance. Like, let's, let's run, you know, a couple simulations, right? So, like, you're, you're, feeling, you're feeling valued, and then all of a sudden you start to notice other people starting to creep up on your value, and that leads you then to gossip, to lies, to rumors, to slander, and it snowballs into something that, that you can't, can't control. Or maybe you're, you're, you're sitting there and you're noticing other people that that's just seemed, or one person that seems more valuable than yourself. They have some gifts, some talent, and you're like, man, they're really useful. They're really valuable. They're more important. And that leads you to envy. And your envy leads to then jealousy, and your jealousy leads to frustration and anger, and then ultimately leads to, to hatred, hatred of the person, yourself, or even the giver of the gifts. It snowballs into something that you cannot control. And so now let's flip back to our case study, King Solomon himself. King Solomon himself. Again, he is a a wonderful picture of do as I say, not as I do. And now we're going to be in 1 Kings 11. So he experiences success. People are coming from all over the world to hear him. And this is what ends up happening. uh, Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women, in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you. They will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines, and they turned his heart away. So he experiences this success, and it leads to other things. And you can almost, like, I can imagine Solomon to himself saying, like, yes, Lord, I know you said don't intermarry these other women. I get it. And that's a great idea for all those other Israelites. But they're not as wise as me. They're not as powerful. They don't have the money. Like, I can handle whatever repercussions are going to come. I got it. I can do my own thing. 
that's a great idea for them, but, but not, not for me. It's okay. I got it. And in his arrogance and his pride and his desire to be materially secure, independent from the Lord, his sin snowballs. The desire to do his own thing, trust in himself, leads to adultery and then to polygamy. And then it leads to full-on idolatry. Full-on idolatry. Verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, unlike his father David. He did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to the Lord, to their gods. Sorry, not his dissatisfaction with, him, with his self and, and trying to uh, place himself in this materially secure position, fully dependent on himself, leads to full-on idolatry where he's building high places for abhorrent idols. And if, you know, maybe he's not taking place, I know I've heard some people pushing back and say, well, he didn't take place in these offerings and whatnot, but he's at least implying, at the very least, to the other Israelites, like, this is okay, like, take part in this. Take part in this. But we see earlier that, that he was fully turned. Solomon did what was evil, did not remain loyal. He was wholeheartedly devoted. He was not wholeheartedly devoted. He turned and went on to full-on idolatry. Why? Because his pride snowballed and was left unchecked. See, pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And then I think the, the last danger that we see with pride, specifically in this proverb, is that pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. It misses, pride misses what it aims for. Ultimately, it misses what it aims for. Pride, seeking to raise the self up, exalt the self, ends up in a fall, ends and leads to calamity, trying to make yourself more important, more valuable, ends in destruction. And again, there's not an exact science to it. We don't have that algebraic equation where we can figure out when it is coming, but we see that it is coming. It might be short term. It might be a, sh- a quick turnaround. It also might be something that we don't even see in this lifetime, but we see that, that the short term gains that we experience from pride will ultimately learn, lead to long term loss. Long-term loss and long-term destruction. And then we get to go, I know this is going to be a quick turnaround for you guys, but we're going to go back to our case study, back to Solomon, right? Back to Solomon. So his sin has snowballed to a point, you're right, adultery, polygamy, idolatry, and the Lord finally says, I've had enough. He says, I have had enough. Verse 9 in chapter 11, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you 
and will give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give, it to, I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. That I chose. So the Lord says, I've had enough. And he tells Solomon, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. See, Solomon's pride, this desire to, to be materially secure, independent from the Lord, fully reliant on himself, is vanished. This, this peace that he has, this, this security that he has taken away. If you were to, to keep reading, you'd see that three different adversaries start showing up on the scene. We've got Hadad, Reason, and Jeroboam. They show up. And for the rest of Solomon's life, he's worried about these guys. This peace that he had, this security that he felt like he had with this wealth, this wisdom, this military power, gone. He's, he's really concerned with Jeroboam, really concerned with Hadad, reason. But not only is his peace snatched away, but his pride leads to the very destruction of the kingdom that he was reigning over. His pride, his arrogance, leads to the very destruction of the kingdom of Israel. And obviously, Rehoboam doesn't help that, if we were to continue reading. Rehoboam, his, his son, doesn't help the, the situation. But we see that in the, the very next king, Rehoboam becomes king over Judah, and Jeroboam king over Israel. And we trace that back to Solomon's pride, back to Solomon's self-reliance. His pride, his arrogant spirit led to destruction and the fall of the united Israel. And so we see clearly in this proverb, right, Solomon trying to um, communicate to his sons the wise way to walk. He would say that pride is not the wise way to go. So the question then becomes, what is? What is the wise way to walk? And we see it in, in many different areas of Scripture. Proverbs 3, James 4, 1 Peter 5, right? We see that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the wise way to walk is, is seeking humility. We, we are to walk in humility. That is the wise way in which we should walk. And what, what is humility? What does it look like? Well, humility, poor in spirit, meek. Uh, but I think the best definition that we can find of humility actually comes straight out of Philippians 2, where Paul says, In humility, consider others more valuable than yourself. In humility, consider others more important than yourself. And, and it's important for us to understand, too, that what humility is not. Like, humility is not being bad at something, right? For a long time, I think a lot of times we think having talent equals Pride. Well, well, humility is not just simply being bad at something or claiming to be bad, some, bad at something. It's not being less talented because, well, having talent doesn't exactly equal pride either, right? Like, like track with me here. I'm a basketball guy, um, and I don't, I don't know who, who your goat is. If it's LeBron, MJ, we'll just put those two together. If LeBron James or, or Michael Jordan, you know, we're not going to have the discussion. If they were to show up here on a Sunday, get up on stage and say, hey, guys, I'm not that good at basketball. I don't know what I'm doing on the court. I'm not very good. That doesn't make them humble. It actually kind of make, makes them a liar because, like, we watch them, you know. You're really good. You, you know what you're doing. Like, 
MJ was good. LeBron's good. I'm not gonna, you know, not gonna do the the ring thing or anything like that. But but they're very good basketball players, right? I think we've got some Colts fans here, so I'll use Peyton Manning instead of Tom Brady. If Peyton Manning shows up, hey guys, I'm not a good quarterback. I didn't read the defense very well. Like, no, Mr. Manning, you you were very you were very good at that. That's okay, right? If Solomon were to purposely sprinkle in some foolish decisions. That wouldn't make him humble. That'd kind of just make him foolish. Like, make the wisest decision you can do, you can, you can make. See, it's not, um, again, it's the mindset. It's the attitude behind what we do. When we are using our talents, gifts, abilities, how are we using them? Why are we using them? Are we using them in a way that, that exalts ourselves, that's for ourselves, our honor, our glory, or are we using it for the glory of God and the benefit of others. That is humility. In humility, count others more valuable than yourself. We need to walk in that way. And, and then the question, obviously, after that is, is how? How do we do that? I mean, obviously, we're susceptible to pride so many different ways. How do we walk in humility? All right, we, we've talked about what humility is and, and, and practically speaking, but the best way for us to walk in humility is to see the cross, to see Jesus right? Jesus is the greatest example we could have of humility. Jesus, the one who is greater than Solomon, praise the Lord, right? We just saw how Solomon was susceptible to it. Jesus, the greater, is greater than even Solomon. Jesus clothed himself in humility by putting on flesh. He didn't consider uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, even though he absolutely knew who he was when he was walking this earth. He absolutely knew, but he didn't consider it something to be exploited, He came in the form of a servant. He lived in a carpenter's home instead of a a grand palace, right? His last meal when when him and his disciples sat down and all the disciples looked at each other like, hey, our feet are dirty, but like, I'm not about to wash your feet. Jesus knelt down and washed their feet and he became obedient to the point of death on a cross, ultimately a criminal's death. See, Jesus came and humbly considered others more valuable than himself as he endured the cross, and praise the Lord that he did that. Praise the Lord he did that because he lived um, in perfect humility, a better way, a better life, more humble life than any of us could ever, ever live. And he went to the cross in his humility. And because he did that, we can now face our pride head on. We can face our pride head on. You see, we we are all susceptible to pride. We're We're not immune to it. In more ways than we can even imagine and think of, we are susceptible to pride. But because of what Jesus accomplished on his cross through his life, his death, we don't have to hide it. We don't have to hide our pride. We don't have to cover it up. We don't have to allow it to snowball into more and more sin. No, we are free to humbly confess our pride. We can humbly confess our pride. And when we do that, I think a couple of different things happen. First thing that happens, I think, when we humbly look to Jesus, confess our pride our pride ends up being extinguished right there. Our pride is extinguished because our trust, our hope, our confidence is no longer in me. I'm not pointing to myself saying, look what I have done in my pride. No, I'm pointing to Jesus and say, I've fallen. It's him. Look to him. My confidence is now in Jesus. My trust is now in Jesus, not in myself. So it extinguishes our pride and then the second thing that happens is, is the destruction, the fall, the ruin that my pride has rightfully earned myself all falls to Jesus. It all falls on Jesus, 
on the cross. And so I urge us to look to Jesus, his, his example, his sacrifice, and repent. And as we repent, we, we seek to walk in humility as we consider others more valuable than ourselves. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and mercy in allowing us to gather together and study your word. Um, thank you for your son, his picture of humility, and the grace that he offers um, offers through, through his, his perfect life um, and death. And it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen. Will you stand in response with us?